So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week, we talk to legendary funk and R&B bassist James Alexander of the Barkays about his days at Stax Records in Memphis and the enduring legacy of 1971's Shaft soundtrack. I was, uh, you know, just turning 21 in 1971. We're still talking about this thing. And while on the topic of the bass, we share some of our other favorite bass lines from the four tops to talking heads. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we are all about that bass. That bass, Greg. You know, the guitarists and the lead vocalists, they always get the spotlight, all the attention. The guitarists get the solos. But there is no such thing as a great band without a great rhythm section. Drums, we gave the drummer some a while back on Sound Opinions, and bass. You know, what's special about those four strings is it is the rhythmic foundation on which the entire song is built. But a great bassist can also really sneak his or her way into your head with something that's very melodic. And and I, I just, I'm so excited. Later in the show, we're going to give some of our favorite super memorable bass lines. But first, we are going to talk to one of the all-time masters of that instrument, James Alexander. That's just a taste of Soulfinger, the 1967 breakout hit for the Memphis soul and funk band, the Barkays. On the bass is James Alexander. Now, the Barkays played a pivotal role in Stax Records' studio system, eventually replacing Booker T and the MGs as the uh, primary session band behind label bands like Rufus Thomas, Albert King, The Emotions, and Isaac Hayes. Also consistent hit makers in their own right that charted throughout the 70s and 80s with jams like Holy Ghost and Son of Shaft. Absolutely right, Greg. And speaking of Shaft, the Barkays were the backing band on Isaac Hayes' classic soundtrack. Released in 1971, Shaft won an Academy Award for the best score. It was the first to be awarded to an African-American composer. And this year, the original soundtrack was re-released in a fantastic new box set with almost two dozen previously unreleased tracks featuring the Barkays. 
So we started our conversation with James Alexander by asking him what it was like to work with Isaac Hayes on such a celebrated recording. Isaac Hayes was, at that particular point, he was so hot. He had three or four other albums uh, under his belt at that at that point. Uh, so when he recorded Chef, I mean, he was just kind of like at the pinnacle of his career. We had no earthly idea that it would turn out like this. You know, here I am, a senior citizen. I was, a, you know, just turning 21 in 1971. We're still talking about this thing. Yeah. So that's, it, I mean, that's a testament to the music, a testament to Isaac Hayes along with David Porter. They kind of like took us under the wing and said, come on guys, let's do something. You know, we didn't we didn't have no idea what we were doing, but we just knew that it was fun. I cherished all moments. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the cheeks? You're damn right. But the sessions, you know, and as I'm listening to all these extra tracks, um, these 22 additional tracks, it's mostly instrumentals. And mostly is Isaac Hayes performing, a multi-instrumentalist, or gifted man, as you said, playing mm-hmm. with, with the Barquets in the studio and creating these incredible pieces of music, uh, some of which was used in the movie. sort of honed that approach with Isaac on the road, right? You guys had played not only sessions with Isaac Hayes, but you had done a lot of live gigging with him before you got into the studio to make uh, the Shaft soundtrack, right? Right. Well, well, actually, uh, when when Isaac first started, uh, you know, Isaac used to play in nightclubs. And I remember years ago we had a gig together for about a year because he had a band called Isaac Hayes and the Doodads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I was one of the Doodads. But we had a standing gig just across the bridge in West Memphis, Arkansas. And uh, we played from nine to three, uh, six nights a week. So we, we learned a lot of stuff during, you know, during that time as well. We was just gigging. And I was still in high school, you know, anyway. And, and that's during that period, that's when Isaac was coming up with those long versions of those Jimmy Webb songs and things like that, right? Improvising with you guys uh, by the time I get to Phoenix and things like that that became these huge hits on, on R&B. She'll laugh when she leaves the part that says I'm leaving Cause I've left that girl so Back in those days, I don't even think he was thinking uh, about anything like that. We were just trying to gig so we could make a little money, so we could just try to, you know, feed ourselves back, mm-hmm. <laughs> back in those days, you know what I mean? Right, sure. Sure. 
You know, James, the uh, uh, history gets clouded so often, even in liner notes, (laughs) uh, much less Wikipedia. Um, Was the story of a lot of that music you guys recorded, was it that it had started in L.A. and then moved to Memphis because they wanted some of that grit from Stax? Is that accurate? Do I have that right? Well, let me explain it to you. Uh, First of all, number one, we were on tour during this time period. Mm. Isaac Hayes was on tour, and he uh, took us on tour as the opening act, meaning the Bar Kays. We actually uh, kind of like begged him, say, "Hey, man, you know, uh, <laughs> hey, would you take us on tours? You know, let us be your opening act. We're gonna be recording with you anyway." So mm. he he agreed to it, and he took us on tour. So what happened was, during the week, uh, we were in L.A. working on the, the the movie soundtrack, and on the weekend, we were back on the East Coast doing concerts uh, all up and down the East Coast. So we were, we, we were flying back and forth. This went on for like two and a half months, you know, back and forth. Yeah. A lot of people obviously talk about Theme from Shaft, this incredibly lauded track that won an Academy Award. Uh, Hayes, uh, Isaac Hayes became the first African-American to win an Oscar uh, in a non-acting category for that song. But then you had another single on that uh, record that did pretty well, Top 40 song, Do Your Thing, which mm-hmm. was 19 and a half minutes long <laughs> on the right. soundtrack. Obviously, they edited it down. But that's an example of what you were talking about, I guess, where, you know, let's just roll the tape and see what happens, right? Let's just roll the tape and see what happens. I mean, back in those days, a lot of that went on. Most of the music that we came up with just came up like that. Hey, we were just having fun. You know, like I said, we weren't really thinking about it that hard. You know, we just knew that we could do what we do. And let's, hey, let's see what comes out of it. Tell us about some of the music. That There's an incredible amount of music that was recorded. Um, do you re- remember the moment the theme from Shaft was created and how that sort of came together in the studio? The theme from Shaft, believe it or not, it's, it's, it all started. Uh, we had this guitar player. that the, He was not in the barcades, but he was just an extra guitar player that always traveled with Isaac by the name of uh, Charles Pitts. We called him Skip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Let's take it. He started playing this wah-wah thing. You know, everybody started looking around and said, what is that? You know, Isaac jumped in on it and just started creating shell from that. I remember him just hitting a whole note on the piano, you know, just over and over again. I mean, it's just, it was so repetitious. It got to be so boring because for it looked like long periods of time, it was just Skip playing this wah-wah and Isaac hitting this whole note. I said, man, where is this thing going? Mm. 
hours after, you know, several hours of working on it. You know, Isaac had this uncanny ability for just coming up with stuff like on the fly. I mean, he was just one of those unique guys that could just come to the studio and sit down at the piano and make magic happen. curious how, what kind of direction because you know Isaac was a noted composer arranger would he give you some ideas about bass lines at all uh, James or, or were you kind of left on your own devices to sort of respond to what was going on in the studio how did that sort of evolve with all the musicians coming up there with their parts it, it kind of worked both ways I mean sometimes he would give out parts and then sometimes just, you know, just from instinct, you know, the musicians, uh, myself included, we would just play something. He said, oh, hey, wait, wait a minute. Keep that right there. Don't, don't change nothing. You know what I mean? It, it worked both ways. And sometimes he would give out a part, and that part would be, you know, it would be kind of wacky. So we just, he, <laughs> said, uh, he said, okay, that doesn't sound right. Let me see what you can come up with. And then he, okay, I like that better. So, you know, it, was, it went back, back and forth like that. I mean, you know. It, it, it it really was a situation where everybody was just really working together for a common goal. You know, it, it it a lot of a lot has been written and said about how the Stax records came together. That you know, Steve people like Steve Cropper and Isaac Hayes when he was alive, obviously, I had interviews with them where they were talking about this idea of head arrangements, where everybody was kind of in the room together and bouncing ideas off each other, and no no idea was considered too outlandish. Let's give this a shot. Very different from the way records were being made in the bigger studios in New York and L.A., where it was very much about, here's the arrangement, here's what you need to play. Uh, right. Did you sort of recognize that difference uh, right away? Uh, I mean, that just seemed very natural for you guys. The music that we created was, was so authentic. I mean, it was, uh, it was so raw. Think about it right then, and the next thing you know, you're playing it. That's spontaneous. I mean, you, you know, like our first song that the Barcase recorded, we was playing this groove, at a nightclub uh, one night, and then we went to audition for Stax, and uh, we was playing this little groove, and, and the president of the label said, hey, what, what is that you guys playing? We said, we don't know. It's just a little groove that we made up. He said, I tell you what, just hold what you got. And he ran up in the control room. And 30 minutes later, we had a song called Soul Finger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were used to just, you know, just coming up with stuff just like just right off the top of our head and it's just next thing you know is part of a record. The thing about getting older is uh, as you get older, you, you start to second guess yourself. When you're young, you just don't, you don't really think about it. You just do it. Next thing you know, you do it. Mm-hmm.
band, the Barquets, we should mention how important they were in, the, in Memphis history. Um, a lot of people think about the house bands in, in, in Memphis as being the key to that sound. Initially, Booker T and the MGs were kind of the band doing a lot of the sessions. But the Barquets sort of moved in there in the late 60s, right? James is kind of like the key backing band for a lot of the sessions as the Booker T and the MGs thing sort of started to break apart. Those guys started to going their own separate ways. And then there were like two incarnations of the Barquets, right? We were kind of like the second string band to Booker T and the MGs. You know, as stacks continued to grow, you know, uh, the workload for Booker T and the MGs was like great. We started getting the overflow, mm-hmm. and uh, to be quite honest with you, for instance, um, you know, Duck Don, who who was part of uh, Booker T and the MGs, was the bass player, uh, the main bass player on most of a lot of the Stax records. Uh, he deliberately did not show up for sessions so I could get some work. Wow, that was amazing to me. I mean, you know. I, I remember being in a session and uh, Cropper kept saying, well, who's going to play bass on this record today? Duck is not here. He said, oh, we got to use Nuck. That's my nickname, Nuck. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Duck and Nuck. And we don't, well, I can't say the rest of it. Don't give a blank. Yeah, so yeah. I can't say the rest of it. But Duck deliberately didn't show up so that I could get in and start doing sessions uh, on a lot of the Stax records. That's mm-hmm. a rare kind of generosity in that competitive uh, studio musician world. Well, you know, Duck, he loved to play golf, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so every chance he could, you know, get to the golf course, he said, Nuck, you going to be around? I said, yeah. uh, yep, I'm going to be around. So, you know, he said, I'm out of here, then you got me covered, right? I said, yep, I got you covered. In early December 1967, the music world was rocked by news of a plane crash near Madison, Wisconsin. Otis Redding, the Barquets members, Ronnie Caldwell, Phelan Jones, Jimmy King, and Carl Cunningham were all killed in that tragedy. You were the guy whose turn it was to get on the commercial flight. That's the only reason you weren't on that plane? That's the only reason I wasn't on that plane. Um, every, everyone else was on the plane uh, in the group. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't know if you remember or not, there was one survivor, Yeah, Ben Cawley, who just recently passed away maybe two or three years ago. So he survived the plane crash, but everybody else that in the plane crash. And, and you had to identify the bodies. I mean, what were you, like a hot 20 years old, right? No, 17. Oh, my God, man.
How did Ben, who survived the crash, convince you to reform a new version of the bar case and continue in music? There had to be a minute where you lost your friends. You know, th this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. Did you ever think, I, I can't continue from this point? Well, you know, I, I tell people this all the time. The Bar Caves were a group, you know, had wisdom beyond their, you know, years. When we were very young, we always said that if anything ever happens to one of us, whoever is left must carry on. Now, you know, that's something for a 16, 17-year-old person to say, but that's the kind of thinking that we were doing you know, at a very young age. But I had no idea that I would be the one to carry on. Mm -hmm. That resonated in my mind. I, I couldn't let them down, you know what I mean? Well, and with Shaft, you know, becoming, you know, one of the most lauded soundtracks of all time in any genre, it's kind of like, you know, you did. You did them right, right? Right. I mean, I, I, I hope I hope they're looking down and saying, hey, <laughs> James, job well done. You know, something, a pat on the back or something. James Alexander, what a privilege. Thank you. That was Barkay's bassist, James Alexander. As always, we want to hear from you. What's your favorite slice of the Memphis soul sound? Leave a message on our hotline with your opinion and why at 888-859-1800. Coming up, Greg and I will share some of our favorite bass lines and bass players. That's after the break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are talking about the bass guitar. You know, bassists never get any love. Drummers, at mm -hmm. least, are the subject of jokes, Greg. But <laughs> bassists, you know, it's, people are always just mad when they show up with two out of four strings. Uh, we are celebrating that instrument on Sound Opinions. We talked to one of the greats, James Alexander. We're going to now give our choices for some other uh, celebrated bassists who we love. Yeah, Jim, talk about an uncelebrated role in, in a rock band. You know, there's no one lower on the totem pole in some ways, you know. Oh, that, was, that was a pun, <laughs> yeah, the low end. Yes, yes. exactly. Um, but, you know, when I was thinking about 60s bassists, because that, that, that was sort of an era of the first iconic bass players in, in, in rock music, especially you know, John Entwistle of The Who, Jack Bruce of Cream, John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin. Another iconic name is James Jamerson. And the reason I focused on Jamerson, though, mm. was throughout the 60s and 70s, in his heyday, nobody really knew who this guy was. He was just an anonymous member of that great Motown house band known as the Funk Brothers that were rarely, if ever, credited on a lot of those great Motown sessions that they played on. Um, you know, I would argue that if you take James Jamerson's bass out of many of the songs that he played on that were huge hits for that label, you take out the spine of that song. You lose yeah. the song. Yeah. Because what James Jamerson did was expand the role of the bassist in that era, uh, especially in contemporary music. You know, he was moving beyond the root notes and chords and, and playing a lot of lead on, on those songs, subtly but very uh, melodically as well as driving the other uh, percussion instruments in the song. It's kind of being the lead engine on the rhythm and also playing a key role in the melody lines. I mean, look at those songs. 
you know, a shotgun by Junior Walker, going to a go-go by the Miracles, dancing in the street by Martha and the Vandellas. I heard it through the grapevine by Gladys Knight. <laughs> Marvin Gaye's version of I heard it through the grapevine. You're grapevine. supposed to choose you know? one track. What are you giving us a box set? I'm going to go with the Four Tops Bernadette. All right. Uh, that's the one. Uh, I think uh, a lot of bass players point to this track as the one for James Jamerson. I tend to agree. If you isolate his bass part, it's incredible. What would the song sound like without it? I would argue it wouldn't be the the major song that it was. Here's James Jamerson doing his thing on the Four Tops Bernadette from James Jamerson on the Four Tops, Bernadette, uh, a clinic on how to play the bass in the 60s. It's a classic. It's a classic. We paid homage to Chris Squire, the founding member of Yes, bassist who died in 2015. We can't do a show about the bass without featuring Squire. Now, generally speaking, I am not a fan of show-off, virtuosic bassists. Uh, You know, John Entwistle is not a favorite of mine in The Who. What's different with Squire? I think although he's super busy and those parts are really hard to play, um, there's always a melody and a rock and roll drive, you know, which is not always easy in like nine-eighths time when yes, yes is off sailing topographic oceans. And Whistle is the anchor. I think Roundabout is his greatest bass line. Now, it starts out as a composition by Steve Howe, the guitarist, and John Anderson, the vocalist. Steve Howe originally wanted a guitar suite, of course. Mm. Not just a guitar solo, a suite. (laughs) You know, and it has that beautiful opening guitar part. And John Anderson, of course, is the mystic hippie. You know, this has one of the all-time worst lyrics ever. Mountains come out of the sky, and they stand there. (laughs) Thank you, John. Uh, what, What makes this song for me is the bass. There is this sort of galloping rollicking feel. Uh, galloping is the word. I think the only other band that's done the, the rock and roll gallop better is Iron Maiden, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, but 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 uh, Squire's bass on this song is just phenomenal in how busy it is and yet how absolutely propulsive and virtuosic. In fact, uh, when Rick Wakeman was playing the keyboard parts, he so liked Squire's bass that he doubled on the Hammond B3 organ. So we got double the bass on this song, Roundabout by Yes from 1971. 
roundabout by yes mountains come out of the sky they you know there. i i have to say i always had a thing for yes of all the yeah. prog bands i loved them from day one and uh you know chris squire may have been a busy bass player but uh, i respect that dude that guy could play i saw yeah. i saw yes a couple of times in concert yeah that was not Many a times. recording that was the real deal yes, this guy is doing the thing and he had those bat yeah. wing cape oh kind of things god yeah. it was unbelievable uh, I'm going to go from this complexity of Chris Squire and, and James Jamerson to a degree yeah. to something that's very simple but very effective. One of my favorite bands of all time uh, and one of my favorite songs of all time combined here, Joy Division, Love Will Tear Us Apart, one of the final songs they recorded. Ian Curtis was only weeks away from death at this point. A lot of people see this song as sort of an epitaph for him. Um, Curtis was a key driving force in that band, and he encouraged the bass player, Peter Hook, from the band's inception to really forge ahead on that bass, to really define the role of the bass in that band as more than just a background instrument. And in fact, on Love Will Tear Us Apart, Curtis is actually playing guitar, and it's just basically a droning D chord. Bernard Sumner, who normally handles guitar, is playing the keyboard line, which is sort of a jumping-off point for the electronic music that they would later make in New Order. And Hook is basically driving the song. You're humming the melody line of the bass. Mm -hmm. And uh, Peter Hook was the guy for the job. He was playing those melody lines on the bass on tons of Joy Division songs. This is his tour de force in many ways. Peter Hook with uh, Joy Division on Lovell Terrace Apart from 1980 on Sound Opinion. That is Peter Hook uh, with the bass on Joy Division's Love Will Tear Us Apart. Jim, you've got another pick for us, right? I do indeed, uh, Greg. I talked briefly about this one earlier this year when we were talking with Jeff Edgers about his Run DMC book, right? Mm -hmm. I I was recalling that fruitful period in uh, New York uh, in the early 80s when the new wave, no wave uh, scene kind of merged with hip-hop and the house music being made in New York um, for something really fertile and a lot of cross-pollination. Liquid Liquid was a quartet that came from the no-wave scene uh, on a small indie label, 99 Records. I remember buying the EP 
that featured this song when it came out. It was this weird combination of these really boho New Yorkers, mm. uh, but but who loved Afrobeat, funk, dub reggae, and the punk that had just exploded and was kind of dying out at CBGB. Richard McGuire, I, I, I'm unaware of anything else he's ever done besides play with Liquid Liquid, but the bass line of the song Cavern, I think, was a huge inspiration, uh, not only to the, all of us no-wave post-punkers, but to the entire hip-hop scene that was coming up. Of course, this bass drove one of the first great hip-hop tracks, crossover hits, White Lines, Don't Do It, by Melly Mel. Vision, dreams of passion And all the while I think of you A very strange reaction The more I see, the more I do. And it just showed how, how you know, we're, we're all kind of uh, using the same ingredients and, and maybe doing different things, but there shouldn't be these walls between genres. That was what was so inspiring to me. Here's Liquid Liquid's Cavern, powered by Richard McGuire on bass, 1983 on Sound Opinions. Liquid, liquid. Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. Love it, love ba-dum, it. Ba-dum. That's great stuff. Uh, brings back some memories with that one. After a break, we're going to share some more of our favorite bass lines from Nine Inch Nails to Parliament. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner, I'm the drummer, he's the bassist, is Greg <laughs> Cott. And today we are sharing some of our favorite all-time bass lines. Greg, you are up. Jim, this is kind of an easy one because the bass on this song is so prominent and so uh, iconic. Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walking. I would like to highlight the fact that the person or persons that played those bass lines Mm -hmm. aren't as widely known as they should be. Carol Kay was a pioneering female 
bass player in the 60s. There Absolutely. were very few women getting steady studio work in the 60s. Carol Kay was getting tons and tons of studio work, all the while raising three kids yeah. at home. You know, She played on records by the Beach Boys and Frank Sinatra. You could name... Well, she was one of the wrecking the crew. Name, the legends that she played with. Now, what's interesting about this song is that there are two bass lines on the song. Carol Kay is playing electric bass. A guy by the name of Chuck Berghofer is playing the stand-up bass. That's the initial mm-hmm. line that you're hearing in the song. Berghofer was a very fine player who was playing on a lot of jazz sessions at the time. He wasn't really uh, a wrecking crew guy like Kay was playing on all these uh, pop and rock sessions. But the combination of those two sounds really makes the song. And if you really break it down, you see how Kay is responding to that lead bass line by Berghofer and adding her own flavor to the song. Yeah. And apparently it was at the behest of Nancy Sinatra, who wanted that bottom end for the song. Mm-hmm. She was just hearing it in her head. Well, she got she got more, more than she wanted. <laughs> I mean, it was like two fantastic bass lines. These boots are made for walking from 1966 by Nancy Sinatra on Sound Opinions. Shouldn't have been a messin' And now someone else is getting all your best These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Yeah You keep lying when you ought to be truthing And you keep losing when you ought to not bet You keep saying when you ought to be a changing Now what's right is right, but you ain't been right yet These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you That's Carol Kay and Chuck Berghofer with uh, Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made for Walking Double Bass on that that song. Those two bass parts provide the sound of those boots walking all over you. I'm going to talk about Psycho Killer by Talking Heads. Because for me, Greg, 1977, when this comes out on the Talking Heads' first album, I am just starting to learn how to play drums, and I am trying to figure out how drums fit together with bass. And I'm, you know, playing on headphones in in the basement, uh, teaching myself to Ramon's tracks and then Talking Heads. I think that the way that Tina Weymouth, uh, uh, again, an unheralded, a heroine in rock and roll, a great female instrumentalist, a champion of the bass, just like Carol Kay. You know, the way she played with her husband, Chris France, great drummer, uh, so integral to all of those Heads songs. But here, especially, 
the bass does something more than just the foundation. It's it's the melody and it's the creepiness of the topic of Psycho Killer. You got to understand uh, what New York was like when the Son of Sam mm. was committing those serial killings. It it was insane. You know, the tabloid newspaper coverage. Uh, I just watched the second, binged on the second season of Mindhunter. There's mm. a creepy recollection of David Berkowitz in that. Um, you know, it, 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 there's a fear in the bass. There's an ominous propulsion. There's melody. It's just one of those perfect bass lines. It made me realize when I first heard it, uh, you know, okay, this is what bass can do. Tina Weymouth, The Talking Heads, Psycho Killer, 1977. Tina Weymouth holding down the bottom end on Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads. Greg, you got another pick? Yes, Jim. Uh, I wanted to, to uh, highlight a modern master of the bass, somebody who's played on a ton of records in the 2000s, uh, as well as uh, being the touring bassist for The Who since John Entwistle died, a mm. guy by the name of Pino Palladino. Uh, you, you know, you talk about an A-list guy that everybody wants on their sessions. Pino is the, the guy who gets the call. Um, he's a Welsh-born uh, bass player. Been playing since the '80s. Uh, you know, Questlove Thompson loves this guy because he's got him in the Soultronics, who are D'Angelo's backing yeah. band. Um, you know, the Voodoo and Black Messiah records mm-hmm. were essentially framed by that band, and the tours afterward, um, ditto for that. Uh, and the Soulquarians, who backed the new wave of soul music in the late '90s, early 2000s, people like Erica Badu. You know, uh, Pino was the was the first call bassist on on a lot of those records uh, at Questlove's behest. So he's played with everybody. Um, but the track I want to highlight is from uh, Nine Inch Nails, and I think uh, the reason I'm doing that is because it really is a showcase for a great bassist. This is a track from uh, Nine Inch Nails' debut record, Sanctified, but a live version of that now two th- in, in 2013, a couple of decades after the song was originally recorded. I can't find 
a credit for the bass uh, from that original record. It might have been Trent mm. Reznor. It might have been a sample or a um, some kind of machine-generated bass line. But Pino is doing it live in, a, in this performance by Trent Reznor on his 2013 tour. And I think it's just an amazing a display of what a virtuoso bass player Pino Palladino is. Here he is on Nine Inch Nails Sanctified from 2013 live on Sound Opinions. Paladino doing his thing on a live version of Nine Inch Nails Sanctified from 2013, a great bass line. Jim, you got one more for us. Well, Greg, I was mad when you chose uh, These Boots Are Made For Walking, because I'm <laughs> the Nancy Sinatra superfan. Uh, but I'm going to, you know, there's one that I'm sure you will co-sign, as the kids say. We got to end this show about great bassists with Bootsy Collins, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bootsy. Yes. It's Bootsy, baby. It's Bootsy. <laughs> We did one of our favorite interviews ever was with Bootsy Collins. We were only able to air about half of it because the <laughs> rest was cosmic or carnal. Mm-hmm. Someday there'll be the outtakes. Um, you know, Bootsy Collins is historically important to me in terms of the role of the bass developing in all of black music. Plays first with James Brown on some of his biggest hits where I, I was initially considering picking a, a Brown track, but often the bass is undermixed, mm-hmm. you know, in the original uh, recordings, even at Live at the Apollo. Uh, you know, and then he goes on to be part of the Parliament Funkadelic family with George Clinton. Uh, even getting songwriting uh, on many of Clinton's uh, best-known songs, including this one, Parliament's Tear the Roof Off the Sucker, Give Up the Funk. Now, there's any of a dozen Bootsy-powered Parliament Funkadelic tracks I could have chosen. This one, uh, you know, in part because of the chance, you know, calling for funk uh, (laughs) transcendence, you know, and the bass is driving us there. He may or may not have been playing uh, bass at the same time with Cordell Boogie Mosoon. You know, Parliament's always hard to tell. And Funkadelic, there's 14 people on stage. Everybody's playing, everybody's chanting. It's a bacchanal. It's like the all-time bass fest. Uh, This is one of his greats, though, and he gets co-songwriting credit on the song Bootsy Does with Jerome Braley and, uh, and George Clinton, of course. The whole lot of shaking going on. Tear the roof off the sucker, give up the funk on sound opinions. Tear the roof off, we're gonna tear the roof off the mother sucker. Tear the roof off the sucker. Tear the roof off, we're gonna tear the roof off the mother sucker. Tear the roof off the sucker. Tear the roof off, we're gonna tear the roof off the mother sucker. Tear the roof off the sucker. Tear the roof off, we're gonna tear the roof off the mother sucker. Tear the roof off. 
man, the bass just doesn't get much better mm. than Bootsy, does it, Greg? Indeed, indeed. I'm telling you that he is the master. Parliament, tear the roof off the sucker. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, it's very Treasures time again. We're going to dig deep, uh, pick out some great songs that are flying underneath the mainstream radar that we think you need to hear. You can download Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcast thingies. The show is produced, as always, by Brendan Banasak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gibbs. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hello, this is Robert from Laredo, Texas. I just heard your show on the cameos, and I heard two references to David Bowie, and neither one of them mentioned Stevie Ray Vaughan doing the uh, guitar solo on uh, that uh, David Bowie track, uh, Let's Dance. One of my favorites, you know, got to mention Stevie Ray, very big here in Texas and all over the world. Love your show. Thanks. My name is Alan. I live in Seattle, but I'm from New York City. And I Don't Care Anymore by Phil Collins was my Take This Job and Shove It song. I'll never forget when I was on Wall Street, I was making a ton of money and I had a team and I was uttering under my breath, I Don't Care Anymore by um, Phil Collins. And one of my guys pulled me into the conference room and he said, Alan, something is up. He said, all you've been doing is singing I Don't Care Anymore by, by Collins, and I think you're going to quit your job. And he was absolutely right. Anyway, thank you. This is Heidi from Chicago. I just listened to your show where you interviewed Whitney and you spoke about drummers who sing and you gave a very short list and you left out Karen Carpenter who was a great vocalist and drummer and also unusual because she was a female vocalist drummer. Still don't have a lot of those but she was you know, really unique in her day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well,
Hey, Jim and Greg, it's Dan from Ottawa, Canada. I was shocked when I listened over the last couple of weeks after the passing of David Berman, and you guys didn't even mention it. David was a tragic figure, and that's what everyone will now forever focus on, but he was also a sardonic and funny songwriter and a very intelligent man, but very sensitive. That's what took his life in the, in the end, the fact that he just couldn't handle this world, but he left so much amazing music. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Hospitalized for approaching perfection Slowly screwing my way across Europe They had to make a correction Broken and smoking where the infrared Deer plunge in the digital snake No more messages To share your opinions on Sound Opinions Call 888-859-1800 We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.